Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest introduced to you now. Dr. Frederick Lois studied bioengineering sciences at Ghent University and obtained a PhD in applied biological sciences in 2002. He continued his academic career at the Research Group of Industrial Microbiology and Food Biotechnology as a postdoctoral fellow of the Research Foundation Flanders. Since 2008, he has held a professorship in the field of food science and biotechnology. His research primarily deals with the many ecological aspects and functional roles of bacterial communities in fermented foods and also a focus on animal products. In addition, his interests relate to human and animal health and well-being, as well as to elements of tradition and innovation in food context. Dr. Lawa is also a member of the Research Group of Social and Cultural Food Studies and is also the president of the Belgian Association for Meat Science and Technology. Dr. Frederick Lawa, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Balanced Body Radio. Well, thank you very much for having me on your show. Uh... Yeah, it's absolutely such an honor. You were featured very heavily in Jane Buxton's recent book, um, The Great Plant-Based Con. How, what was it like to see your name mentioned so many times in her book? <laughs> well, to, to be very honest, I haven't really read it in its full extent yet. Uh, I had so many things to do over the summer. Uh, Jane sent me a copy, which I still have to finish. Um, so I haven't read it completely yet. I'm, I'm saving it for quieter and <laughs> more more uh, pleasant time so I can enjoy it. Yeah, well, it's not an easy task. The book is over 500 pages. You've seen it. You have it. Yeah. It's very thick, so it's not an easy task. But yeah, when we go back to the references in the back, we see your name, and you're featured in there probably 10 or 15 times. So really cool to see you and your work um, featured so many times in her book. Very cool. Well, I know that Jane did uh, it was a lot of work for her to get all this information into one book. So um, I she certainly has done an amazing job for what I've seen and what I've read and uh, what I discussed with her. It's, uh, it certainly is a, a huge effort to do something like this. And um, I'm looking forward to, to reading it completely. Yeah, well, it definitely was a huge effort because as you and I were talking offline, we are fighting an uphill battle when it comes to getting this message out. I mean, her book titled The Great Plant-Based Con carries this enormous like connotation of like we're getting scammed by this plant-based movement, which is very, very interesting. And it's not that eating plants is necessarily bad, but there is this huge agenda and this push towards a plant-based diet is better for us and is better for the planet where, you know, our most traditional foods and the foods that we evolved with as humans are getting pushed to the side or being told to people that they're, they're not the best foods to eat. So I'm just curious, since you've been doing this for so long how has this message really changed in in your career yes well i think it's not so much a problem that there's a promotion of plants as such i mean i'm all for a promotion of any wholesome good nutritious food um the problem is not there the problem is this push that we're seeing that is um more trying to reframe the whole concept of nutrition health and diets and uh, there's this enormous push also for ultra-processed foods. So it's, it's about imitation foods. It's about imitating foods that we have that are part of our historical culinary legacies and then trying to replace it with imitations and trying to claim that those imitations are superior to the original ones. So that's, that's the problem I, I'm having with this whole situation. Not so much that there's a uh, promotion of plants. I mean, that's, that's a good thing. Um, that's not, however, what is happening. Uh, we hardly see um, sound, balanced, 
advice to design diets that are based on combinations of wholesome plants and animal source foods. No, it's, it's not about that. It's about pushing out the animal source foods to, to the maximum and trying to replace them with some sorts of, of imitation foods. Yeah, it certainly seems like that conversation has been intensified in the recent years. Would you confirm that? Yes, yes. So I've been following this uh, evolution. And in, in the beginning, I hardly paid attention to it. When I was at the early stages of my career, studying animal source foods from a um, processing quality, food safety perspective, um, nobody was really finding that problematic or or no exceptional um but as time went by uh, i was facing questions and uh, i was also seeing that the topic of my research was presented in mass media as as destructive and um to the point that it, uh, a couple of years ago we i even did a study with other people trying to look at discourse and the way meat in particular was presented in mass media and, and so we followed the trend over time. And so in the studies published, you can, you can find it, um, where we mapped the whole evolution. And there was a clear trend starting, especially around, I think it was around 2006, more or less, where there was an acceleration in the anti-meat messages. The, titers, the titles became longer, uh, more sensationalist, more extreme. And um, the, the balanced news items that we were finding before were evolving towards very hyperbolic um aggressive pieces on why we should not eat meat any any longer uh, and that started around 2006 started increasing uh, and it reached an important point in 2015 with the irc uh report which is an expert expert panel from the world health organization that stated that red and processed meats are to be seen as uh, cancer-provoking foods. And that was picked up by media very quickly, and they compared it to, to asbestos and to, to cigarettes. And uh, that, that, again, accelerated the whole, the whole thing. Um, so we, soon after that, you had the Eat Lancet report, again, which was very much pointing towards animal source food sending and red meat again as in particular as unhealthy choices, unhealthy for humans, unhealthy for the planet. It's a high level report. It was also backed by many um, influential organizations and it gets lots of exposure. And those are just a couple of examples. There are many things going on. There are many interconnected um, actors within that global network of food policy and food communication and, and even you know, press um, that amplify that message more and more. So it's an expanding uh, narrative, clearly. Yeah, that's so interesting. I'd love to deep dive into all of that. To, to be able to do so, we we might even need to go back even further in history, you know, 100 years, 200 years ago, with, with religions kind of pushing this idea that animal foods are not great for us. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, originally, the whole avoidance of meat goes back to, to religious ideas. Um, it's, uh, if you look at history, throughout history, you will find people or movements that did no longer eat meat. Uh, sometimes even uh, broader than that, other animal source foods as well, but especially meat and especially red meat. Um, that comes with ideas of purity comes with ideas of um, self-denial 
uh, it's in those those movements that are looking for spiritual um, purity and red meat as such has always been considered as something very powerful. Okay, so it's something that connects us to, to the earth. It's sensual, has a red color. Um, it represents strength, uh, vitality. And if you have that mindset in by which you're saying that uh, we should get away from the um, from the material things of the earth and transcendent away from it, then you have to drop that as a first thing. Uh, the Garden of Eden diet was based on plants, so we had to go back all the way to the Garden of Eden. That's in the in in the in the context of the Bible, but you have it also in other in other movements. In those cases, the idea of dropping meat is, in other words, very tightly connected to purity. So and that, that went on over history, but those were always very small groups uh, or, or sects, or uh, you find it even in ancient Greece. Uh, uh, the belief in reincarnation was also part of that. Um, and the religious ideas took hold of the, um, the more mainstream conversation, let's say in the 19th century. Because in the 19th century, there was a certain movement called the um, Bible Christians, and they come from the Swedenborgian Church. And the Swedenborgian Church, again, is very mystical. It's, it's, uh, it's also about going back to the Garden of Eden. And it developed into um, different sorts of groups that eventually founded the first vegetarian societies in the West, especially in England, in uh, the United States, in Australia, in the English-speaking world in, in, in particular. And those movements, uh, starting from the religious ideas, think also about the Seventh-day Adventists, uh, where again, red meat was um, portrayed as something that would stimulate sexual lust. So you shouldn't eat it, you should eat bland foods that are not lust provoking, as boring as possible. You see again, because meat is so so tasty and so so uh, so powerful, you the, the idea is to go back to anything that is not provoking that is very bland, that is very neutral. That's the only way to transcend. Now, the Seventh-day Adventists became also very influential, especially through people like John Kellogg. Um, they got hold of medical discourse because Kellogg connected those ideas of, of purity to um, the medical literature. At the same time, he was talking about water therapy and about all sorts of other medical interventions. He had very influential clients. Um, his... Um, one of his protégés, uh, Lena Cooper, then was involved in the foundation of uh, foundations of the Dietetic Association. So it infiltrated medical discourse, household economics, and it somehow became um, an, an important element of progressive middle class people, especially in the progressive era. The whole vegetarian movement was. Uh, one also that connected to where you eat, to the civil responsibility you have, to the progressive ideas you want to display, uh, women's rights, uh, abolition, socialism, all of that was one package. So it is, at that point in time, vegetarianism became symbolic for something more complex. So it's, and that's something we, we still do very much. The way we eat, what we eat is something we try to communicate to other people.
Now, we, tried to, we tried to show other people what we are through the foods we're picking and, and eating. Um, and, and meat has a very special place in that, in, in that discussion until today. You, it's, it keeps on evolving and you have then the, uh, you have the, the world wars where meat is on the one hand a very valuable food again because it needs to fuel the, the army and it needs to feed the populations that are uh, starving. Um, so there are all kinds of practical interventions from the government to try to redirect the meat from the Americans towards Europe um, using propaganda to do so. So as part of your civic responsibility, you should not eat meat because you should save it for the Europeans. And uh, there were meatless days and posters and, and people were spying on their neighbors so that they wouldn't be indulging in, in meat and they would be following the, the guidelines. The um, after the world wars, you had the environmental crisis coming up, and the environmental story became part of the discussion. Uh, animal rights groups have been active since, again, I would say the late nineteen, well, the late nineteenth century, especially the early twentieth century. Um, very often in a new age setting, um, using vegetarianism as again a way to transcend, but then to a kind of new age. Um, that would be an age where people would no longer eat animals. So it, it's a very complicated pattern. There are all sorts of reasons why people have, were avoiding meat in the past. And they were independent tracks in a way, but they somehow all merged into that <laughs> complicated discourse on meat being bad and plants being good. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a it's a patchy it's a messy timeline with many things going on, with people avoiding meat for different reasons, but it all cross fertilizes each other and then it it becomes one confused package. Yeah, that's very interesting, and this is part of the reason why I love your work so much is you are able to deal with all the different ways that these storylines kind of converge in a way that that makes it easy to understand, even though it is very complicated and complex and just. Like for the listener, like if you're if you're sitting there thinking like, okay, well, I'm not a Seventh Day Adventist. I don't really care about Ellen White or John Kellogg. There, you know, that was back in the 1860s that they were kind of doing their thing. You might not have sure. any idea how much influence they still have to this day. It's pretty wild. Yeah, well, that's what Belinda Fetke looked at in in, in in much detail. She has really mapped all that all that um, influence. Um, they even admitted that themselves. There's a, there's a great paper produced by some uh, Seventh-day Adventists on the, the influence they have had on global diets. Until today, you find Seventh-day Adventist scientists on the uh, committees that are designing dietary policies. They came up with the Seventh-day Adventist studies that are also underpinning the nutritional, epidemiological uh, material that says that meat is bad and we should go vegetarian or vegan. Uh, so they're extremely influential. Um, but we shouldn't overstate their role. I mean, they're substantial, but it's not the only thing. It's one of the factors in, in a more complicated message, in a more complicated dynamic. But but certainly they, they have been extremely influential. I think the position of Kellogg has been really important um, because it's it's at that moment in time, it's that moment where science is presented as the way forward. It's very much the time of, of the, it's the early stages of technocracy, you know, when people believe that scientists will take over and um, they should organize society 
uh, and that includes the medical part of it, the health part of it, uh, designing optimal diets, uh, connecting diets to progress. And, and that, that first layer was already containing the, the religious undercurrent, you see. So it's, it's, it wasn't based on very factual things. It, it was a belief system. And on that belief system, they just laid out this, this layer of, 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 science if if you wish that would give it credibility um but it comes from from an irrational uh, starting point and that's interesting and it's especially interesting because from the moment this happened from the moment these beliefs infiltrated medical discourse and infiltrated um you know those first papers on on nutrition and and public health um it created this healthy user bias Right, so so it, that's and it's interesting that if you when you look at nutritional epidemiology, whenever you see those associations between people that eat lots of meat and a higher risk of of uh, certain uh, diseases, well, those studies are usually done in the English-speaking world, and especially in the United States, and especially in in the in in the middle classes of of the United States. Um, now, if people have been told that meat is bad for them since a long time, because the first dietitians were saying so, uh, it, it, it just spreads in 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 the in the shared vision on what constitutes good and bad foods. So it's been there, and it's being amplified now because what those studies do is capture that effect. And then they bring that effect again in scientific literature to reinforce it. So it's a kind of positive feedback loop. You see, it's it's um, they're capturing what was there initially and making it more and more uh, evident. But if you do this, those same type of studies in other places of the planet, you will not see that. You will see in other places sometimes that even if people eat more meat, they become more healthy. The, the exact opposite. But that's in a completely cultural, in a completely different cultural setting. And to be fair, it's also a different economic setting because those people that eat more meat in, in, in the global south are the people with more money, so they have a better healthcare. So it's it's a kind it's kind of potentially biased as well. But it just shows you that the study you're doing is contingent on the place where you're doing it, the cultural background of that area. And, and the whole historical context. In a way, I, I often describe nutritional epidemiology more as an anthropological science than, than as a, an actual health science, because it actually captures the uh, beliefs of the middle classes, mostly uh, regarding what is healthy food for them. And then that, that's what you capture in those numbers. Those people in the West that eat less animal source foods, and especially red meat, those are the ones that, that live more healthy lives. Those are the ones that are usually more more wealthy. They eat less ultra-processed foods. They go more to the doctor. They drink less. They smoke less. They are just more healthy people. And that's what they eat. And you capture that in the association. You do the exact same thing somewhere else, you get a different result. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking specifically of the blue zones, which are, you know, this idea that we've got these different areas around the planet where people tend to live longer and we just, we observe them. We look at them first of all, and then we draw these conclusions and you're right. There's so many other things besides diet that could be part of that. And 
you know, we we interviewed both Dr. Gary and Belinda Fetke recently on the show and talked about how the Blue Zones is a trademark now. It's not necessarily mm, yes. a study that was done. It is owned by the Seventh-day Adventists, and they cherry-pick yes. where which zones they want to, you know, focus on and which ones they want to ignore. You look at places like Iceland, you know, the, the Inuit tribes when they're eating their proper diets. Those people live very, very long and healthy lives, yet we're excluding those and including places like you mentioned in the Americas, Loma Linda. Loma Linda isn't a blue zone. They pointed that out to us. Like, this is a collection of people who belong to this religion and we're reverse engineering, you know, this message when we're telling people that it's mm. because they're eating more plants that they live longer. It's nonsense. Yeah, yes, it's, it's a good way to describe it. It's a kind of reverse engineering, indeed. Um, and uh, you mentioned the Inuit. Well, the Inuit were perfectly healthy uh, and, until, and it's valid for many uh, traditional groups that were confronted with the Western diets at some point. Whenever they take over the Western diet, their health is collapsing. And that's clearly not because of the meat. That's because of the Western diet and whatever is problematic about the Western diet. Now, we don't really exactly know what is problematic about the Western diet, but most likely it is this combination of refined starches and sugars and oils uh, and those packages of ultra-processed foods that just mess up your whole society system. They do all sorts of things which are endocrine responses. Um, from the moment they shift in their diets, well, the health goes down. Uh, so it's it's as if those blue zones are just valid for a certain specific region in the world in a certain time frame, but overlooking you know the whole of Homo sapiens, both in the time dimension and in the in the spatial dimension. It's extremely selective just to support the narrative. Yeah, and and to be fair, to be totally fair, for the Seventh Day Adventists, they are promoting this idea for the very best reasons, right? Like they they are promoting this mm -hmm. idea because they believe if enough people believe in this and convert to a Garden of Eden diet, that Jesus Christ will return, and they're doing it for good reasons. I that's fair. That's totally fair. And 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 the. Because that's their belief, at the very least, they don't try to hide it. It's it's kind of like you mentioned and what Jay mentioned in her book. It's like this is a source of pride for the Seventh-day Adventists. They, they, they're proud that they're sharing this message with everybody. But there's other parties kind of involved in this message. Again, pushing a plant-based narrative that's also telling people that meat is actively bad or bad for the for the planet. Can you talk a little bit about some of the, the other players in this story that people might not be as familiar with? They might not be as, you know, for with with all their information it's again a very complicated patchwork you have all sorts of different players there um what you do have for instance is uh just the fact that some scientists are pushing that message as well and and they also do it with the best of intentions that's that's what they call white hat bias you know they're trying to be uh, too helpful they're too zealous they try to you know take that progressive message and find the right science to support it. And they publish papers just to, to get it out. And those are then, then used to, they're very welcome, much welcomed by, by other players because they amplify the credibility of the message. So th those people are just producing papers, uh, repeating the same things with different studies, but essentially doing all the same stuff. Uh, very often also it's uh, it's about modeling so it's based on all kinds of assumptions you can get any outcome you want if you change the assumptions so there's a lot of 
freedom in this scientific space to come up with a certain message if you want it all depends on how you set up your 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 study and how you design your your model how you pick your metrics so there's a lot of flexibility there you, you could prove all sorts of things if you wanted but it just happens to be that those very uh, sort of crusading scientists uh, are now becoming very noisy very vocal and and they get also the platform to do that then you have the uh, so-called public-private partnerships, uh, which are in the style of the World Economic Forum. Right. That's so. That's the that's when corporations meet with uh, NGOs and and certain governments and all sorts of um, other parties, and they come together around strategic targets. Uh, for instance, changing the diet, um, and then you see, of course, that there are certain corporations that are very much interested in promoting that anti-meat message because for uh, many corporations in the food space, meat is no longer a very interesting option. And you see that even the, the traditional meat producers, the big ones like the Tysons and, the, and, and JBS and so on, they're also now gambling on the, plant, on the plant protein side. So they're calling themselves protein companies rather than meat companies. Wow. Um, and then you have all the other ultra-processed food producers that are very much interested in, in, in creating those imitation foods. Um, so there's a huge market there. Uh, it's not really taking off. I mean, it's growing uh, sometimes for some products, but it's starting from a very small base, right? But the potential is enormous. If they would manage to make us all believe that meat is indeed extremely bad for you and for the planet and for the animals, if it's so bad that it really has to go, uh, that gap of meat and all the other animal source foods, you know, think about eggs and fish and uh, dairy, uh, all those foods have to be replaced. And uh, we have, will have to eat something. So, and that's an enormous volume. And if, if we reach the point where we say, okay, animal source foods are now bad, science has proven it, well, this has to be filled in. And that opens up an enormous market, of course. Uh, so they're just gambling on that, that there will be indeed substantial reductions of those, um, of those animal source foods so that they can, you know, develop their imitation foods, because that's also the interesting thing. It's uh, it's not going to be a shift to rice and beans, you know, as, as farmers were doing in the past. If they didn't have access to animals or foods, what they usually were doing was combining grains with pulses, because that gives you a reasonable amino acid spectrum. Um, so that's not going to happen. People will want to buy the same kind of foods, but then there will have to be those imitations. And typically those ultra-processed food producers are just very good at doing that. You know, they're just very good at taking something which is originally very unpleasant. Think about a protein isolate. That's a bitter thing. It's, it, it looks bad. It's, uh, it's just something you wouldn't want to eat. So they just have all the tools and they accumulated those tools and the expertise over years uh, to ultra-process that into something that looks completely different and tastes completely different. They've been doing that in the past, right? They start from something that is not very attractive, but then because they add colors and texturizers and flavors, and a, you're able to, to make it, to turn it into something that just hits the button and just, you know, it, it, it wins the sensory jackpot because it plays on, you know, fat combinations of fat and sugar and salt that just give you that, that brain effect that wants you to, to eat more. So they're just very good at designing food starting from very cheap materials. And, and for them, if you have this 
huge extra margin that you can create as added value uh, based on the narrative, because that's what they're selling. They're selling the narrative. They're, they're much more selling the narrative than they're selling the actual material. You know, the material they're having is one thing, but what they're selling, the money you're paying, is not for the materials. It still is today for a large part, but it's also very much for the narrative. That's where they hope to make their profit. So you get this collusion between those companies that are trying to give platforms to those scientists that will come with the science to that will imply that we should make that transition. Um, you, it's, it's, there's no uh, other explanation why why the World Economic Forum, for instance, insists so much on on uh, a great food transformation that goes towards you know, plant-based diets. Why would they do that? They consist of those mega corporations, investors, elites. They're not going to give up animal source foods themselves. So it's they see it as part of a of a transitioning that is interesting for all those corporations that are represented in those platforms. Now, that being said, uh, it's not just pure profit. We have reached the stage today where many, many corporations, besides the profit, are also completely dragged into that idea that we should just transition and we should just do it. It's part of a design. It's a it's a kind of techno-utopian mindset. Um, and, and it's many think tanks also come up with those things. So you have think tanks like the Telus Institute and, and the World Resources Institute. They come up with scenarios. They talk about you know different ways for the future. It goes back also to the Club of Rome and the limits to growth different scenarios for the future. Uh, and those have to do with resources that deplete. And then we have to deal with that. We have to manage it. And they create scenarios. And some scenarios are just going to head for disaster, according to their view, and others will go to utopia. So again, even in those technocratic mindset, which uses science as its language, even there you find that idea of ascension, right? you go to that better society. It's it's uh, not the, um, the the Christian utopia of a new garden of Eden, but in a way it is. It's that perfect utopia in the future that will be science-based, ruled by technocrats. And in such, a, in such a rationally designed system, you don't have that prehistorical food that, like meat. You know, it's, it's what also Pat, Pat, Brown, Pat Brown also says that the CEO of Impossible Foods, he, he literally said that livestock is a prehistoric food production. Right? So it's a prehistorical system. We should not use it anymore. We have now high tech. Why would we, why would, why would we eat prehistorical foods? Um, it's human hubris. It's profit. It's ideology. It's uh, technocratic design. It's... And it's virtual signaling, of course, very much as well. It's all of that. Wow. <laughs> and, then, and then it comes, it comes together in, in it just it's it's different players with different views, different agendas, but somehow they find that common that common thing that is called, you know, meat is bad. Yeah, totally. That virtue signaling re reminds me of the game changers. Incredibly well done and destructive piece of I, it's agenda. It, it is it is manipulation. And and I had to sit down and watch it. Too many of, of my of my people like were bugging me about it. And so I had to sit down and watch it. And you realize after a very short period of time watching this, you're just watching a very long commercial. This is propaganda. This is not like a movie or a documentary. They're just it, they're, they're pushing this message on people. And you're right. It feels like virtue signaling. It's like I can do this one thing. I can, you know, avoid the animal products, meat plants. And not only am I doing the best for my own health, but I'm doing the best for the animal 
animals and for the planet all at the same time. It's virtue signaling, just like you said. Yeah, and, and that, that part goes back to the 19th century. That's what, hap- that's what was happening in, in the progressive era. That was what was happening in, in, the, in 1917 with, the, you know, with the, the meat that had to go to, to Europe. Um, that was virtue signaling. People were doing that because they wanted to show how progressive they are. That's one thing. But it's also, it's deeper than that. It, it's, it's more than virtue signaling. Um, because virtue signaling may be of all times. It's just that some moments in history um, create that neurosis in a society. We're clearly in such a moment, and we were in such a moment, in, such a, in a very similar moment at the, in the second half of the 19th century. Very, very similar. You know, it's, it's when the middle classes are just drifting away from the elites they, they just cannot catch up with the elites anymore. They cannot afford the same things. They're just you know, drifting away because the, of the increasing gap between uh, you know, middle classes, elites, but especially also then the lower economic classes. So there's a huge element here of class anxiety. You know, people are distressed because they cannot show their worth anymore. They, they have a general sense of being, of, um, being meaningless, uh, having no purpose, um, being useless. And that's economic, but it's also cultural. It's something in the zeitgeist. And it just happens to be a moment like this. And when people have class anxiety, uh, the the typical reaction when people have class anxiety is that they want to um, abolish differences, right? So you get always, Typically, in such moments, you get herd formation, mob formations. People make mobs because in a mob, everybody's the same. It's, it's those moments where there's a big push for authoritarian interventions so that everybody should follow the same instructions and nobody is different. People sometimes rather prefer that there is no difference, that everybody's the same, than that they would be inferior compared to other people. Right? It's, it's this a bit nasty thing that humans seem to have. And it comes to its expression in, in such moments of crisis. And I think we're in a moment like this. That's why this whole discussion is not about meat only. It's about, uh, it's a wider discussion about people um, becoming polarized, uh, using symbols to express that, that, uh, that anxiety. And uh, it's, it's not that they only want to show how good they are themselves. It's also that it's this very dark uh, characteristic that in, in such moments, many people also would like just to have the, all the other people submitted to authority, just to get them on their place. Uh, it, it's, it's something you find in very dangerous times. Right. And, and I think we're living in very dangerous times. And meat is, meat is just, you know, it's one of the, you can think about all the other things that happened over the last years and are still happening today. You know, you better show that you belong to this category by showing this symbol and by saying this statement. And if you don't, you're in the wrong group. Right. That's right. Wow. It is a little scary. And we, we do live in scary times, especially when you put it like that. Oh, so, so I want to, 
okay, we, we don't really care what people choose to eat. If you decide to eat a plant-based diet, that's totally fine, totally fair. Go ahead and do that. But I would like to hear your argument for something that you said earlier. So you talked about, uh, you know, uh, avoiding animals because it's good for you, it's good for the planet, and it's good for the animals. And maybe we can tackle each one of those three things. If somebody came to you and said, I am avoiding animals because I know it's the best for my own personal health, what things would you want to share with them about that? Yeah, well, if, I agree. I mean, if people don't want to eat animal foods, I will not stop them. I mean, this is their choice and I respect that. Um, I, I may give information and they can do with it whatever they want, but it's their own choice. And, they, and again, they, as I said before, there are different reasons why people will not eat animal source foods or they could, they could just say, I will not eat red meat and I will, I will eat all the other ones. So that's... That's fair. The problem is not there. The problem is when uh, some people try to impose dietary views on others. Right? That's when it becomes problematic. And, and it becomes extremely problematic when that happens on vulnerable populations. Now, think about very young children. When their parents just decide for them that animal source foods are uh, no longer on the table, well, those young children have special needs. They are vulnerable populations. Um, they have no choice. And that's that's something where that I find ethically problematic. Now, if it's if it's about if we're talking about adults that choose a specific diet, well, it's it's all fine. And then you you should have a conversation that is that is factual and and incorporates all the positives and negatives of a particular food. And to be clear, there are issues with animal foods, as there are issues with certain plant foods. Um, it's a matter of, of choosing those foods within the entire omnivore spectrum that are good for you and that have a net positive effect. Because it's also another, another thing is that we just, and it goes together with the social dynamic we, I, I, I outlined before, we, we tend to position foods in a, in a binary of, of being good or bad. Uh, it's either good or it's either bad. Now, it's so that foods are both. <laughs> every food is both. Every, every food has a, a good and bad side. Now, some foods will be mostly bad and some foods will be mostly good. But even if you talk about red meat, which is mostly a good food, it, it can be produced in unsustainable ways and then it becomes a bad food. But it can also, on the health level, to come back to your question, it can be that you know people that are uh, responding in specific manners to uh, saturated fat or to heme iron, uh, maybe for them it's not the best choice. Whereas for many other people, it will be a very, very healthy choice because it brings in so many nutrients and especially iron for heme iron is very bioavailable. So many people will benefit from that. And a subcategory of people will have to take care because they may over accumulate the iron and then that leads to health uh, issues. So it's, um, it, there's an enormous amount of flexibility involved in these discussions normally. So if, if we're talking about health or the environment, uh, for both cases, essentially, it's a matter of, of the practical side of it, uh, of the heterogeneous aspects of it, how people respond, how the environment responds, what are the local resources to produce that food. Uh, is, does it make sense to have cattle in that area? If it's you know a hilly area with grasslands and there's lots of rain and you cannot grow crops there, well, then that makes perfect sense. If the, if the same area is also suitable for crops, well, you may have to think it through. You may have to integrate the crops and the animals, or you may just grow crops and 
So it's in all cases, and that's for diets uh, with respect to health, and that's for agriculture systems with respect to production. In all cases, it needs to be circumstantial. Uh, and, and taking into account specific local needs and addressing those in the best possible ways. And usually there are combinations of that. There's no one single solution, even in a specific context. Now, the worst case scenario is when some people try to impose one solution globally, top down. They say this is the best diet for everybody. A blue zone diet, a Mediterranean diet, a planetary health diet. This is going to be our solution. And we all follow that, that line. That's when you run into trouble. Um, you start bottom up, you find your best local solutions that make most sense to your culture, to your dietary habits, uh, your own preferences. You have to like it yourself. I mean, you, why would we eat foods we don't like? You have to take, you have to choose those foods that you also appreciate. Um, and, and then it's, so this is all, this is all not very welcome in those policy environments where they like simple solutions right? because this doesn't communicate you know you can do a bit whatever you like as long as you respect certain guidelines that's essentially what what i'm saying and those guidelines usually are just a framework of common sense traditional now know-how um culinary legacies uh farmer wisdom you know that's the framework you have to operate on but that's not something you can impose very easily, you know, top down according to specific criteria with specific metrics. It's a much more complicated approach. Yeah, no, I love that answer. And I love that you addressed so many things in that answer. It, it's so difficult to divorce all of these things together. Like when you're talking about human health and planetary health and how to create the best solution around you, that answer is so complex and different in every place. You need that level of creativity. So I, I guess I'll go to the second question, which is like, again, we're not trying to per, we're not trying to persuade anybody to eat any differently than they, they want to. But if you find somebody who says, I am not eating animal products because it's better for the planet, what information would you, would you want that person to know also? Well, we're not persuading anybody, but if, if it can help to, if somebody is really bad in bad health, you know, it, sometimes it can help to offer arguments and make them think, so maybe they would fix that problem. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's not that we shouldn't discuss it at all, right? We shouldn't, be, we shouldn't force it on anyone, but the information could be offered. Um, for the environment, it's 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 a, an enormous. I mean, it's it's a, could be, this would be a very long discussion <laughs> because if you talk about the environment, what we usually have today is is this carbon tunnel vision. No, it's all about carbon. It's all about emissions. Um, now, the environmental part, or let's say sustainability in general. Sustainability is a extremely complex um, constellation. It's not even the one thing, it's a constellation of things. Sustainability has to do with also with, with the human side of things, you know, with, with livelihoods and all of that. But it has to do, even if we're just talking about environmental impacts, um, it's not only the carbon, you know, it's, it's part of the story, but it's the biodiversity, it's the water wastage, it's the, the, um, the nitrogen phosphorus cycles, it's... Um, Food, feed competition, soil health, uh, erosion, you know, it, it goes on and goes on. It's a long list of things. What I'm saying here is that agriculture is a complex system, right? And if you have a complex system and you change a parameter in a complex system, all things start to move. Everything starts to, you know, shift position and change. And, and the impact of that is extremely difficult to predict. 
all sorts of things may happen. So radical interventions are in any case um, very dangerous. So what the, the best approach there is that you try to monitor the most important dimensions and you then you start you know playing with those and and bring in elements that improve it. Um, and animal source foods can do good and bad things on all those parameters. No, you can you can overgraze and then you have all sorts of negative effects. But you can also use, if you're talking about ruminants, you can also use your your you can use cattle and move them around certain sort of paddocks and and you know improve biodiversity and water retention and soil health and carbon sequestration. Um, so the, the way you handle that herd is extremely important. This, the same herd can be devastating if badly managed, and it can be a, an, a huge bonus if you do that well. Uh, so it's 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 pra praxis is how you do it. Um, it's what you're aiming to achieve, and and take into account that if you optimize one thing, you may have trade-offs somewhere else. Uh, all of that make it again a very complicated discussion. I'm sorry for that. I don't have a specific you know, answer. The only the only definite answer that I am willing to give here is that, in my opinion, um, the best approach to the food system is a proper integration of animal source foods and plant foods. The whole distinction is is damaging. I mean, it's not one or the other. It's you do the best of both to the best of your possibilities, adapted to your local context and then you see how far you get with this it certainly would be a huge improvement if um we start from there we start fixing uh the degraded soils by introducing good practices using the tools that we have you know or the farmers have um bringing in those animals bringing in those you know diversities of plants that can be can be combined doing all of that fixing local pieces of that whole patchwork that is now out of order and and then we'll make progress. Yeah. I, you know, I was having a conversation with somebody before this conversation in preparation and we started talking about animal animal, you know, welfare and and raising animals and their contribution to global emissions and things like that. The numbers you always hear that are usually, you know, greatly exaggerated. Ooh. And and this person said something that I thought was incredibly wise. She was like, "Yeah, there's probably some issues there, but I don't think that's the biggest issue." And and I had to agree and say like, "Yeah, you know, it, it's such a small amount you know, to, to climate change, especially that people are so worked up about the raising animals is such a small percentage of that. It's like, if you really wanted to make an impact, it's not that you would avoid animal products. You'd probably just like not drive a car. Like there's other things that you can do that would be a, such a bigger impact than avoiding animal products. Well, the impact, I mean, it's, it's simple for a Western individual, um, or the footprint, carbon footprint of a Western individual. If you take out the animal source foods and you go vegan, you, you'll you'll have a measurable effect, but it's a tiny effect. You know, it's not much. It's a couple of percentages. Um, and it's you, I, I did a calculation somewhere um, based on the footprint of, of an average Frenchman, and it's it's around uh, I think it was around six percent or something like that. If you go vegan, now it, it may even be less than that because of um, rebound effects and so on. It may even be half of that. And especially if you, you if you go vegan, you have to stay vegan if you want to have that effect every year. If you do it just for one year, it's going to be useless on your lifetime. Uh, and many vegans, as we know, they just revert after a time. Most of them revert. Now, you can you can be less radical, and then it's maybe sustainable on the longer term, but then the effect also becomes smaller. If you're flexitarian, it's, it's, um, it's maybe 1% or 2%. 
that that's that's the that's the game we're talking about on the carbon footprint. It is something, and you could say, I will try whatever I can to reduce that footprint, including the diet. Well, if that is a choice, go ahead. I mean, again, I'm not going to stop you, but just be aware that this is not a very large impact compared to all the other things one is doing. Yeah. Um, it's because in Western countries, where the whole footprint is based on the fossil fuel part of it, and it's indeed it's transportation, but it's also ICT. It's all the things we buy. Um, it's many housing. It's many many things. Uh, and the diet is just the, the easy part, right? You can well easy. It's it looks easy. You just you know instead of your burger, you you buy you buy a, a plant based burger, and you think you did the right thing, right? It's not going to have all that much of an impact uh, on on the things you can do and not do. Now, tell people to stop traveling or tell people to stop having cars or to stop having pets, for instance. You know, pets are a major contributor also to this. Um, that's not going to go down well. It's it's just a symbolic thing you can do. It has an impact, but it's small. Very small. Yeah, that's a really good point. Okay, so for the third category, we've already talked about human health. We've talked about the health of the planet. The third category of person that maybe would tell you like, hey, I, I don't want to do this because I love animals. I don't like to see that animals are harmed or killed. Can you talk about our systems as far as raising animals and, and where improvements can be made, if any, or if it's as cruel as people like, you know, the, the PETA people would have us believe? Look, animal welfare is, is, I think it's, it rightfully has its place in the discussion. I mean, we should grow animals in ways that are not leading to pain or to suffering. Um, that's beyond discussion. I think most people will agree on that. Um, however, it's animal welfare is a different, different thing than animal rights. And, and there's room for improvement on the animal welfare front. I mean, there are still practices that need to be improved. Right. We have made huge steps already. Uh, we just, you know, we present it as it's like it's going worse year after year, but we have done, we have taken steps to address that. Um, and uh, it's um, it's a matter of also evaluating all this properly, but by taking into account all the different elements of discussion you need here. First of all, we shouldn't be um anthropocentric you know by projecting our own ideas and emotions on those animals you know what the animals feel and want is different that we sometimes what we think that they, they they want um if an animal is properly taken care of you know it's provided shelter veterinary care when it's not feeling well uh, when it uh, has a disease um it, it and if it has a good life overall it can um has access to um Outdoors, you know, it all depends a bit on the type of animal, of course, what their specific natural behavior is. But if if there's potential to express natural behavior to a certain degree, and the animal is just well taken care of, and then it gets a quick death after that, well, I don't see a problem. Um, and so that that's that's one thing. So it's, you have to see what it means for the animal. I mean, uh, it's it's not that all the animals once they would get freedom they would just enjoy their freedom and and, and be better off. <laughs> that's right. Uh, that's that's, hap that's happening in those movies for children where you have you know a farm animal that is then you know depicted as if it were a, ch a child. That's one thing. And then the second thing is that people just don't think about what happens in crop agriculture. Think about the harvesting machines. How many animals are killed? 
by just collecting the crop that you can kill one big animal like a cow and you will have a lot of food for that. Like if a cow spends its life on uh, mostly on grass, it's uh, it's going to come with a limited amount of animal deaths. Right? You can say, well, of course, maybe insects and so on, but it depends where you draw the line, let's say also. But uh, if that same cow also receives lots of uh, feed uh, coming from monoculture crops, well, then it will be coupled to a lot more deaths. But if you just have those cereals, then instead of giving them to, the, to, to animals, you give them to humans. Well, those cereals also come with, with lots of um, animals dying for that. And imagine what happens to those animals. Try to, try to think about what happens to those animals. If you have a cow in a slaughterhouse and it's, just, and it's, and it's slaughtered, well, it's, at least it's supposed to receive a, a, a painless death. Right. It's, it's, that's the procedure. People like Temple Grandin, for instance, have done an amazing job to optimize those things, and so that there's a minimal impact on on, on uh, pain sensations and anxieties by designing it to the best of possibilities. Taking into account the point of view of the animal, because by the way, Temple Grandin um, is is uh, is so good at this because that's what is what she says. She's autistic as well, and she can you know think as an animal rather than having the anthropocentric view on it. So she just takes things into account. For instance, if there's a shadow in the, in the, in the corridors, uh, she, she thinks about it. Oh, this is going to frighten the animal, so you shouldn't bring him in this time of the day because the shadow will be too... You see, those kind of things. Wow. Now, if, now, think about harvesting machines and, and the mice and the rabbits and whatever is killed, uh, or by poisoning them or by shooting them or whatever, they're going to die a horrible death, right? It's going to be agony. They're not going to... Uh, make them first unconscious. So th this comes also with your bread and whatever else you're eating. Uh, and the more you move towards those, you know, those those monocultures with those big machines and those big operations, the, the more there's control on on pests and on uh, on animals, essentially. So it's a, it's a very tricky discussion, and I I I fully understand if you don't want to eat animal source foods because of that aspect of you know, the animal life that is involved. That's fine. I, I, I will not criticize people for that. What I'm saying here is just, I think, important part of the conversation. If you, if you still don't feel comfortable, even if you think about, the, if, even if you think those elements through, just because of the psychological effects it may have on you, well, don't eat it. Yeah. Uh, try to have wholesome alternatives. Don't fall for the, you know, impossible beyond things, but, you know, have wholesome solutions for that. And I'll, I'll respect that. It's your, that's your psychological reaction to animal foods. Don't eat them if, you, if, if it makes you feel bad, right? If it gives you uncomfortable feelings. Um, but don't think that the other diets will be free of animal death. Yeah, that's right. You mentioned the combines, and I, I had not considered this until she said it. We've interviewed Lear Keith twice on our show. Um, she mm -hmm. wrote The Vegetarian Myth. She's absolutely wonderful and did a vegan diet for about 20 years. And she mentioned that to me, I, I again, I had not considered this, but as the combine is going, you're actually the, – the last few acres are the worst because all the animals are condensing into a smaller and smaller area. And she talked about how absolutely traumatizing it can be for the drivers of those combines harvesting the crops what you're right like put yourself in that animal's shoes what a horrific horrific thing to be like running away from oh my goodness yes well that, and probably the book of uh, the book that Lever wrote is one of you know one of the best descriptions of how far we are detached now from you know the 
the reality of life and death. Um, and, and again, I think this is an underlying problem here. It's, it's something that is really at the core of the whole discussion. Whatever we talked about before, you know, all those reactions uh, that we see, the polarization, there's a big issue with life and death and, and Western populations not understanding anymore what that means. Uh, trying to get death out of our lives, you know, we're trying to not to not to have it anymore. We make it an abstraction. An abstraction. We um, we see it as something that contaminates us that we have to get rid of. It's just not being able anymore to give death a place in your daily lives. And Lear this, um, describes that to perfection in her book. You know, this 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 paragraph where she talks about the snails in her garden that's just fantastic i love that story Uh, i we talk about that story so much i find that story hilarious and so instructive at the same time yes it's but it's it's really that right it's if you start thinking it through you you just get into that short circuit in your mind because it just does nothing makes sense anymore it becomes so much of a, a cognitive problem to deal with this based on assumptions that are just, you know, artificial in a way. And then you, you, you have a foundation that just doesn't make sense. You know, you have this, this mind construct and you're trying to build on that and you build on that, and you build that until the whole thing collapses because it, it just, it has no solid foundation. It doesn't have the solid foundation of our ancestral views that, you know, developed over generations and generations that developed cosmologies to that to try and deal with this difficult problem of life and then to give it a place and to be functional in in that system and and since we're detaching more and more from that from that legacy uh, and trying to build our own thing very quickly and very um uh, over rushed uh, it's it starts to fall apart from the moment you start to scrutinize it and to put your finger on it yeah. Yeah. So interesting. This is where I, you know, work of, of, of Jake and Marin from death in the garden, I think mm-hmm. is so wonderful. Mutual friends of ours. And I know you appeared on their show and an absolutely wonderful podcast. We'll definitely link that in the show notes. So people can go check that out. Three hours long is just absolutely wonderful discussion you guys had, but, but that idea death in the garden, like, like as much as it is uncomfortable for us to come to terms that if we want to live, something else has to die. That also forces us to confront our own mortality. The one day we, are going to die that is very difficult but i think the more we can grapple with that i think it can help us make better decisions around food that that will serve us and serve the planet and serve the animals like you said in a really uh, a much better and healthy way and so we've talked a lot about you know different problems we have in our food system and different solutions but i'm wondering you know as a closing message for somebody who is being bombarded by this message this narrative that in for, for you to be healthy, for the planet to be healthy, for the animals to be healthy, you shouldn't, you shouldn't consume animal products. What are some, what, again, what would your advice be for that person who's bombarded by that message? That's what I'm trying to do all the time, right? (laughs) To answer that. Uh, It's just that it needs so much elaboration to do that properly. Uh, Because you can, the the point is you, what, what happens is that, there's one side here that comes with very simplistic messages. You know, it's slogan-esque. Animal source foods are bad. They're killing you. They're killing this and they're killing that. Now, you can easily drop that. That's not difficult. Um, but it, to say why it's not true needs, you know, you need to you need to say so many things. 
uh, you could do the same. You could say, well, animal source foods are good. <laughs> uh, and but then you have, you know, nothing, nothing moves. No, that's not convincing because the other the other narrative is much more attractive nowadays. No, it, it's more attractive to say that something is bad and you should avoid it and you should scapegoat it than to say that something is good and it will improve your lives. Um, it, it's, it's a difficult one. Um, but I would say that if, if, we, if we want to move ahead and improve the future, it is all about building solid foundations. I've mentioned that a couple of times. It's when you start fixing what is wrong at the moment and think what is needed. What is needed for better human health? And then you can show you know, what is going on at the moment. You can show all the uh, percentages of iron deficiency and, and, and the problems with, with all sorts of micronutrients. Um, how are you going to solve that? Right. Uh, you can talk about um, the environment with degraded lands, lack of biodiversity. What are the options here to, to fix that? And then there's a societal part. We have communities falling apart. How can we bring communities together again? Well, in all those three problems and all those three potential solutions here, animal source foods play a role. Right? It's, it's, the, it's the most social of all foods. It's the food that brought humans together since the very beginning. We went hunting together to get those animals. We were sharing them around the fire. It's the first, um, the first step to commensality and shared eating experiences. Now there were plant foods as well, sure, but but you know the most important there was the, even if sometimes it was maybe in some cases uh, um, less important in total volume, still it was the most symbolic. It was the most important. And in some cases, it was just the only food they had. So, it, but it's had an extremely important position in the historical human diets, of you know bringing people together around the table. It's today's barbecue is coming from that. It's very very deep in us. So, bring them up front. Don't have the ultra processed food culture that just you have a ready made meal, you eat it, and you that's it. No, that's not a rich experience. Have a rich experience. Go back to traditional meals. Most of those traditional meals contain animal source foods. Uh, there are exceptions, but most of them, especially the ones that are most cherished, have animal source foods in them. Uh, think about that if you go to the environmental part. This is, you have this degraded soil. How are you going to fix the degraded soil? Well, there is one solution. You know, use the animals. How they can you know, recycle the nutrients, valorize the byproducts you get from other, uh, from other activities. Um, they have that huge potential to valorize things we, we otherwise couldn't use, and they have the potential to bring back, restore health to soils. Uh, so it's, it, it, I think it's the, the best way to to move here is to um, or to to make this more explicit is by trying to visualize a, a tomorrow, you know, a future where there would be no animal production. How would that look like? Try to imagine that now that you've heard all this information from you know, those plant-based um, advocates, try now to imagine how the future would look like. Um, there's going to be a lot of food that you have to produce, and it's going to be those types of food, ultra-processed foods, or we're going to get better from that. Those ultra-processed foods will need lots of monocultures to be able to provide substantial material. 
how will those old monocultures play out? How will they affect biodiversity? Use of fertilizers. Um, and, and all the other things it's, uh, that are, um, all the other damage that it's creating. And think about the future of human communities and the role food plays in human communities. So try, just try to imagine that and, and uh, think it through, but really think it through. Yeah. Now, people will probably not do that in most cases. They, however, they start doing it when they feel that their health is collapsing. Okay, or, or when they had any other existential shock, that's the moment they will start to think it, think about it, and think it through. That's probably also why so many um, people that are now very much advocates of animal source foods were vegans in the past. Uh, if if they're very much you know advocating in many cases, they run into trouble before, and they know what it means and how it has helped them. Um, improving their own health. So it's, it's usually change comes with a kind of existential shock, but we're um, insulated for those shocks. Right? We, we're not confronted with much of the trouble. We get one-sided information. We don't get in contact with the actual food production system. We don't see it. We don't, you know, we don't interact with it. So we're insulated and, and we're, we're not getting that interaction that we need to be able to change our perceptions. But sometimes you do, you know, when your health collapses. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. I love that advice. I think all of us could be um, much better off by considering where our food comes from, what what the planet would look like, you're right, without ruminant animals helping to improve it and thinking about the ways that we can all live symbiotically with the plants, with the animals, and and be able to improve the health of the planet and ourselves. I, I so much appreciate all of the information you brought to us today. We could go in depth with any of these <laughs> topics and, and, and talk about for hours, but I, I think I think the listener will come away with um, a much more nuance. And you're right, like like yes, this is complicated. Yes, this is difficult. Yes, there's a lot to consider, but it's worth considering. And it's worth thinking about and applying in their lives. And so I really so much appreciate you and all of your work. Where would you like people go to find you to connect with you and your work? What is my my Twitter account? Um, you can put it maybe in show notes. I don't know. It's it's F L E R O Y nineteen seventy four. And then there's the website Aleph2020, A-L-E-P-H 2020. It's a blogspot. So if you Google blogspot Aleph2020, you'll find it. It gives you a comprehensive overview of um, what animal source foods mean for health environment and also an ethical discussion on it. So whatever I couldn't address today because just we don't have the time for it, um, you'll find it there. It goes in much detail. Um, Maybe it's a bit too technical and goes a bit in too much detail, but it's there's a lot of information there. If you really want to dig into something and try to get, you know, another perspective, but still science-based because everything is linked through to um, to articles uh, to the primary sources. Um, go and visit the website, and uh, I hope it can help people in you know getting getting a better view on on the the complexities of, of this discussion. Uh, I know that it's, it's, it's often said that uh, when people say that something is too complex, it's a kind of way to, you know, not to address it or to hide something. It's really not the case here. This is a very complex discussion and it needs a careful evaluation with a very balanced view on the harms and the positives of, of um, every type of food we're producing and trying to 
integrate us. Yeah, well, I would highly encourage the listener to go to that website. It is so well done. We really appreciate your work. Dr. Frederick Lawa, thank you so very much for coming on our show today. We know how busy you are. And thank you for sharing your message. We really appreciate you. Thank you for having me. It was such an honor. And this has been another episode of Balanced Body Radio. As always, thank you so very much for listening to and supporting Boundless Body Radio. It has been such a joy to go on this journey now that it's been two years of doing these episodes and all the amazing conversations that we've had with thought leaders and to be able to share this message around the world with literally hundreds of thousands of people has been so amazing. If you haven't already, please go over to Apple, leave us a rating and review as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and touch more lives of people out there. I am so excited to announce that we are launching the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. This is something that I have been working really hard at for a very long time and something I am very proud of. Now that we have done over 300 episodes, our content can be a little bit overwhelming if you really want to learn about one particular topic and really zero in on that topic. So that is exactly what I have done. I have gone through all of our episodes, taken the very best clips all about one particular topic and put them into long form very informative and concise episodes called the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. That can be found on our brand new Patreon page, which I'm really excited to announce as we have all kinds of different offers there and different tiers. We're including early releases of our show, Boundless Body Radio. We typically keep about 15 to 20 episodes scheduled at any given time. So we have options there where you can have early access to those. We are also offering group and one-on-one coaching and also access to these premium podcast episodes, the Balanced Body Radio Premium Podcast. We have three that are launching right now, and I will be making a new one every other week. And we believe that we are providing these for a very, very high value. So please check us out on Patreon, check the link in the notes to be able to get there. And thank you as always for listening to Balanced Body Radio.